Believers proclaiming the good news about Christ in the marketplace of politics, education, and business. Obviously, this is the great command Jesus gave his followers. But what about the use of political and military power to promote his cause? Our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, presents some powerful lessons from the past about the church's use of political and military power. He also shares an incredible story about a young 10-year-old American who made an incredible difference when he founded what he called the Mustard Seed Society. One of the things that's always amazed me about agriculture is that, for example, in our own yard when I first built our house, I planted a live oak tree right outside my study. I planted it pretty close to a septic tank. So you can imagine what it's done. And almost everybody that comes to my office talks about my live oak tree. And when the live oak in the fall begins to drop all those acorns, it makes a great big mess. But if you ever picked up an acorn, I'm sure all of you have done that. I mean, it's just a little tiny nut. And I often will take those acorns and I look at that tree and I, what an incredible miracle it is. You can take one of those little acorns, plant it in the ground, and that little live oak begins to grow. And then you can even go down to Baylor University, for example, and they tell me there's live oaks down there that were just little bitty guys when Sam Houston was walking the plains of Texas. And you look up at these gigantic trees and those branches reaching everywhere and the shade that it brings. And it shows us that incredible power of an acorn, of a seed, and how it can produce something incredible. All of you have planted gardens. For example, you get the carrot seeds out. And man, you can barely see them in your hand. And you sprinkle them down. And, and then later on, in a few weeks, it produces carrots that you can actually eat. It's an incredible explosion of nature. You take these little tiny seeds and they explode. In the land of Israel, especially in the Lord's Day, one of the major little seeds that they used was a mustard seed. And maybe some of you have grown mustard plants, but in Israel it was the smallest seed. In fact, you almost need a microscope to be able to see it. And the Lord Jesus one day said something really important to a group of people just like yourselves. He said this, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. I want you to turn to that passage in Matthew chapter 13 because I want to talk to you today about the mustard seed society. I want to talk to you about joining a fraternity or joining a society. And I'm going to call it the mustard seed society. And it's taken from right here in Matthew 13. In verse 31 it says that the Lord told them this parable or this illustration or this story. You notice whenever someone's speaking to you in a public way and they say, now let me illustrate that for you, and they tell you a story, they give you an object lesson, and it suddenly comes alive for you. That's what the Lord is doing. Now last week we learned that the risen Christ gave us a mandate. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of every nation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And last time we were together, I shared with you about the impossibility of what the Lord was challenging the disciples to do. He challenged a group of 11 guys that I want you to go into all the world and be witnesses and all authority is given to me. And I talked about the total impossibility of that. And then I also marched you through history to show you that it actually took place. Because right here, the Lord told those disciples, the kingdom of heaven is going to look like a little mustard seed. As you go out and as you talk to friends and as you give your life over to the Lord and as you begin to really believe in the gospel, your life and what you're doing becomes like the planting of a little mustard seed. 
But you see, in the land of Israel, when you plant this little microscopic seed, it grows and becomes over 10 or 12 feet high. It's not just a typical, like a tomato plant that just gets to maybe four or five feet high. This mustard seed explodes and it gets to be 10 and 12 feet high. It becomes like a tree and the birds can come in and nest in its branches. That's what the Lord is saying. Though it's the smallest of your seeds, yet when it grows, it becomes the largest of the garden plants. And it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Now the essence of this story is how a little tiny microscopic seed explodes with growth and becomes something really significant. And that's what we're trying to focus on. Last week I talked to you about gridiron glory. And I talked to you about going to a school like Notre Dame and how in the spring of the year all the seniors will present the traditions of greatness and they'll tell you the history of the football at Notre Dame. Why do they do that? So that when a Notre Dame guy goes out on the field in the fall with that blue and the gold, they wear that with pride. South Bend, Indiana is a little tiny town. It's a little bit outside Chicago. You never dream it would become this gigantic university and it would be the, the preeminent collegiate place for football. But Newt Rockney began traditions. And they carried on those traditions through the years. And I guarantee if some of our young football players were drafted, were given a scholarship to go up to Notre Dame, when they walked out on the field in the fall, they would know the history of Notre Dame football and it would give them great energy and great conviction and great power as they were playing ball for Notre Dame. And that's what we're doing as we study about the history of the church. I took you from zero to 400. I talked to you about those 11 guys up there by Mount Hermon being given the command, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What chance would they ever have of, of creating a worldwide movement? But in 311, Constantine, who was seeking to become the next Roman emperor, became a follower of the cross of Jesus Christ. I didn't even mention to some of you, I'm not sure I mentioned it to you, but the Lateran Castle or the Lateran Palace in Italy which was the center of the Roman Empire. It's where the Roman emperors ruled from. When Constantine moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople in the east, guess who he gave over the Lateran Palace to? It was the Bishop of Rome. It was the leader of the Church of Jesus Christ in Rome that was given that castle. Why was that? Because of the influence of a group of believers. It's the mustard seed idea, that little seed that explodes. Then we talked about from 400 to 800, and I talked to you about how the church didn't reach out to the forest people. Only a group of heretical uh, Aryan believers reached out into the forest. And yet I talked to you about how when the, the Gallic tribes attacked the Roman Empire and sacked Rome, that they'd been partially Christianized, and the influence of Jesus and the influence of, of the message of the gospel caused them not to burn all the churches. Then I talked to you about another period. I talked to you about how that produced the Charlemagne Renaissance, where manuscripts all over Europe were copied by the thousands, probably by the hundreds of thousands, and all these little mission stations, these monasteries. And I, I talked to you about the missions up in Ireland. But I also mentioned to you how even Charlemagne didn't reach out in missions. They didn't reach out to a group called the Northmen, the wild men of the North Sea, and Rollo, the great Viking, attacked northern Europe and then eventually just swept throughout Europe. And this time, they didn't exempt the monasteries. They didn't exempt the churches. They burned them to the ground. They went to Ireland, a major monasteries in Ireland, major mission stations in Ireland that had been responsible for sending missions in, into Europe itself. 
The Vikings demolished the station. They took monks captive and they took little girls captive. And I told you, but then another incredible thing happened. An incredible thing happened. Those little girls and, and those monks went up into the North Country like Finland and Norway and Sweden. And they began to plant the seeds of the gospel. And it exploded. And eventually the Scandinavian rulers became Christianized. And they responded to the message of the cross. But then we concluded last week with a very, very serious blight in the story of the mustard seed. We talked to you about a church that around 1000 decided we're going to bring the kingdom of God not by love, not by the power of the gospel. We're not going to try to infiltrate business. We're not going to try to infiltrate different language groups and bring the story of the fact that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And the fact that Christ rose again from the dead. No, what we're going to do is we're going to march our armies from Rome across Europe and we're going to recapture Jerusalem for the glory of God. Jesus said that the kingdom of God needs to rule from Jerusalem. We're going to set Jerusalem free from the Saracens or what you know as the Islamic hordes and we're going to win a great victory. So the crusading armies, one wave after another, went and they took Jerusalem supposedly for the glory of God. Until the great Saladin occurred, came and attacked those crusaders and was able to knock them back into the Mediterranean, send them all scampering back to Europe. But what the supposedly holy crusades did was create a terrible blight upon the Christian church. And even today, the Islamic group is the hardest group for us to touch with the gospel. Now what happened there? The church forgot about the fact that Jesus said that we're to be like the mustard seed. That we don't conquer by taking a sword of steel, but we conquer by bringing the sword of the Spirit. You see, when you're trying to move people to personal faith, personal faith can never be forced. Personal faith can never be produced by the blade edge of a sharp razor blade or a sharp sword. It has to be by the ministry of the Spirit. But the church forgot that. And then the church was plunged in as we move into the end of the Crusades, the, the Black Death, the Black Plague attacked Europe. More than a third of Europe died. You can imagine. It's kind of like the AIDS epidemic in Africa today that we need to be very much in prayer about. It was just devastating the population. I mean, they would just pile bodies in the street. It produced a time of great decadence. In fact, the, the church became just full of materialism. And, and they forgot all about Ephesians 2.89. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that none of yourselves. Until there was a monk up in Germany that one day became so exercised. You see, there was a man that was going around the countryside, and if you think that different preachers are false, this guy was going around, his name was Tetzel. And he went and he said, when the coin in the coffer rings, your loved one from purgatory will spring. Well, not that that's Roman Catholic doctrine, but that's what Tetzel taught. When you put your coin in the coffer, you'll be able to get your loved ones out. And Martin Luther became so exercised about that, that he went and nailed the theses on the door of a German church. And then he began to preach, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and his salvation to everyone that will believe. There was already a movement right within the Roman church itself. Even without Martin Luther, there was already a movement of the spirit that was causing people to get back to the Bible again. 
to begin to believe that it's by grace, that it's a gift of God. And powerful movements began to be initiated and twists like John Calvin founded in Geneva, a whole society that was dedicated to the gospel of Christ and, and the gospel of amazing grace, that whole idea. But you know what? For 200 years, as the Protestant movement started getting going, the Protestants didn't do anything in the cause of missions. Even though they believed in justification by faith, in fact, there was a young man up in one of the northern European churches that said, we need to get burdened to reach people that are lost. You know what the church elders said? They said, if God wants to reach them, he'll do it without our help and without your help. Isn't that a great encouragement? Can you imagine that? But you know what? God began to work in people's hearts. And I want to try to pick up the story. And I'll pick it up just with the story of the United States. And one of the major things I want you to realize today, in our church today, you know that we've got a lot of teenagers in our church. You know that we have a lot of junior highs in our church. You know we have a lot of children in our church. And one of the things that I want us as a church family to do is to never despise the work of God among the young. Because as we look back over the history of what God has done in the church, it's been incredible what God has done through young people. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, turn to there, the Apostle Paul said something very important to a young man about his responsibility of the gospel and also the way that he needed to operate in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Let me read it to you. It says, this is a trustworthy saying. Now what that means is, this is something you can build your life on. This is something you can count on. This is something that's, that's not going to run out of gas, you know, as you live a few years dedicated to it. It's not going to be like hula hoops, where you're going to spin your hula hoop for about six months, and then the whole craze ends forever, or some of the other crazes that come upon our country. This is something that's going to last forever and ever and ever. This is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, Timothy, this is what I poured my life into. This is what I use my heartbeat for. This is what I use my muscular strength for. This is what I use my life for. Now look at his next statement. What did he give his life that was so important, so trustworthy? That we put our hope in the living God. Every one of you needs to have hope. As you live here today, I want to pray that the lights are on in your eyes. I want to pray that you have hope, that you're alive. And hope is what makes it alive. Hope means that in the end, I believe it's going to be okay. And what generates the idea that in the end it's going to be okay is this idea of hope in the living God. What does it mean, the living God? Do you believe that God is alive? You know, whether you believe it or not, it's true in your own heart. You are alive because God is eternally alive. And that's what Paul wants us to realize. Even though we might live in a world where people don't believe God's alive, even though we might live in a world where people ignore God, that doesn't change the reality that there is this loving Father, this loving God, who's the living God. He's the living God. And what it means is that as we pray to him, as we talk to him about things today, that God hears us, and God is alive, and he has the power to meet these needs. And God wants to do something very, very important. Look what it says in the next phrase. We have put our hope in the living God, but this living God has a passion for something very important. He is the Savior of all men. How many of you have ever read the verse, For God so loved the United States of America that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Anybody ever learn that verse? Did you ever study this verse? For God so loved Midlothian, Texas, that he gave his only begotten Son. Do you read that one? 
God so loved Texas. You know, we want to divorce ourselves from the union. God so loved the independent nation of Texas that he gave the only begotten son. Is that what it says? What did it tell me? Every, all the kids and everybody. For God so loved the world. You know what? Until you're a world Christian, you don't understand the heart of God, and I don't either. And one of the biggest temptations of my life is to just look at my own immediate situation and just to be concerned about my own immediate situation. You know, when you're young, it's real exciting to go traveling and everything else and to meet new people. But you know, as you grow older, all that excitement goes right out the window. And it's easy to say, man, I'm just going to sit at home. I want to get, you know, a real stereophonic sound video. And I'm just going to put those things in. And I'm just going to live for comfort and just live for me and just live for myself. You know what? If you do that, you're going to be missing out on the heart of God. And because I love you, I don't want any one of you to not live your life strength for something that's trustworthy, for something that will last. And what Paul is telling young Timothy, he says, Timothy, I want you to be a world Christian. I want you to realize that God so loved the world. Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, especially, the next phrase, of those who believe. And what that would call attention to is that we have a responsibility to go to everyone and communicate to them that God has a desire to save them. And if they will respond, that he'll become their specific individual savior. He will personally relate to them. They can know God in a personal way. Then the Apostle Paul tells young Timothy this. Command and teach what I'm teaching you. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Don't ever look down upon a child. Don't ever look down upon a teenager. Don't ever look down upon a college student. Don't ever say as an older person, well, man, what can they do? Man, I knew that kid when he was wet behind the ears. One of the greatest challenges with young people is to not despise them, but to honor them and to, and to motivate them and to give them a vision for what God can do. What Paul said, Timothy, don't let anyone despise you because you're young. Instead, you are to be an example for believers in the way you talk and your speech, in the way you live in your life in the way that you love others, in the way that you believe in Christ, in your faith, and in your sexual purity, your purity, your ethical purity. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scriptures and to preaching and teaching. So Paul told young Timothy that he was a young man, but he was ordained by God to have a ministry of reaching the world, which at this particular context included being a pastor teacher of a church in Ephesus. Now you say, well, Dave, that was back in the first century. Timothy was Paul's sidekick, and Paul trained him, and so that's all back in the first century. Well, let me tell you a little bit about student power, about young people power in the Church of Jesus Christ right in our own land, okay? And there was born in 1783, just a little bit, you, so you get the right context. 1776, what happened? July 4th, 1776. That's when we were... Born as a nation. For us that live in the United States, 1776 is our year of freedom. 1883, you got it? Got that. There was a little boy that was born in 1883. His name was Samuel. He was a son of a preacher. So don't ever knock sons of preachers, okay? But you know, sons of preachers can be terrorists. In fact, I've counseled a lot of them that are terrorists, that have gone totally away from the Lord. But little Samuel was born the son of a congregational preacher. And his mommy began to pray when he was born something very significant. When he was born, his mom began to pray, Lord, just like Hannah of old, I want to give my Samuel to the Lord. And something very specifically, I want Samuel to become a foreign missionary. 
Now, for us, you know, Wycliffe is just up the street, and we've got team mission and the Central American mission. We can say, well, that, you know, a godly mom might certainly pray that her son would be a missionary, and it would be a great thing. But you know what? In 1783, that was an incredible prayer. You know what? Because there was no American missionary. There was no American mission society. There was no vehicle to get anybody to the field. But this godly mother began to pray for her son, Sam, that he would become a foreign missionary. It's incredible. When he was 10 years old, when he was 10 years old, his dad had a revival in his church. And little Samuel heard the gospel, and he had responded to the Lord. But in that time of renewal in their church, the Lord touched that little 10-year-old kid to go to the foreign field. And he began as a 10-year-old kid to pray for mission thrust into the world, to bring the gospel into all the world. He grew older, he lived in New England, and he went to Williams College in Massachusetts. And at Williams College, little Samuel, that had now become a young man, joined with about three other men that were at the university, Williams University, that believed, or Williams College, it wasn't even big enough to be a university then, he began to pray with three other guys, just like some of our college students. Like Jonathan and Joel meet with their friends early in the morning at UT and they pray. That's what Samuel was doing. He met with three guys and they would go down by the river that was right there flowing through their town and they would pray every single day for the gospel to reach the world and for their part in it. They would sometimes go in a beautiful valley near the college and they would devote three and four hours at a time sometimes to praying for the evangelization of the world. One day they went out and they were sitting by the river and a big thunderstorm came up, just like yesterday, as those big winds blew up and they, it started raining. So they took off running and the only shelter they could find in 1806 was a haystack. And they met in this haystack, the four of them, and like crazy college students, they kept praying. And during that prayer meeting, they also had some discussion and Samuel Mills said this to his friends, if we are willing, if we are willing, we can do it. Now, what did he mean by that? He says, if we are willing, if we will respond to the Great Commission to go into all the world and make the disciples, we can reach, we can reach the world in this generation. If we are willing, if we are willing that the Lord God of heaven can do it. And those three other young men grabbed a hold of that with him. And they began to pray. In fact, they got so burdened that they started a mission society at Williams College. And some of you know Judson Ashley. A lot of you don't know that Adoniram Judson is who Judson Ashley is named after. Adoniram Judson had heard the story of William Carey, who was the very first English missionary to go to the foreign field, really stirred with missions. And William Carey, just a few years before this, had gone to India to found a mission thrust into the continent of Asia, specifically in India. And he was, William Carey was already proclaiming that just shall live by faith and trying to get to know the Hindus and trying to help them to understand who Jesus was. But Adoniram Judson, as an American, had heard that story and he was burdened to go. And he met with this small group of college students at Williams College and he challenged them about missions. Within two years, they met with a congregational church. And at that time, when they met with a congregational church, because remember, Sam's father was a congregational missionary. They had no mission society, no vehicle. And these four college students that had now gone on to Andover Seminary met with the congregational elders and said, you've got to found a mission society because we're going. And they got the congregational church to found the first American mission society called the Foreign Mission Society.
And those four guys went out to the foreign field for the cause of Christ about two years after that. And it was the beginning of American world missions. The Lord caused that group to start to spread to other universities and mission societies began to grow all over the United States during the 1800s. And God began to work in a very powerful way. Now, a lot of you have heard of D.L. Moody, okay? D.L. Moody comes right after the Civil War. If you want to try to have it in place, D.L. Moody kind of ministered with the YMCA during the Civil War. And then after that, the Lord anointed him in a powerful way that become the Billy Graham of his era. In fact, Billy Graham is right on a line with D.L. Moody. My dad was strongly influenced by D.L. Moody. Well, D.L. Moody, in the, right in the late 1800s, came and met with a group of students, and he called for a conference up at Mount Hermon, which is in Massachusetts as well. In fact, my dad, when I was a kid, took me to Mount Hermon there in Massachusetts. Up there in this Northfield area of Massachusetts, he called for a student conference, and over 200 students came. And in the late 1800s, these students prayed for a whole month for the cause of world missions and for their part in it. And they banded together and they decided that some of them would go. About 100 students decided to go. And about 100 students decided we will work and we will network and we will found societies to help our buddies in the foreign field. And it was college students, just like in our church, that founded what became known as the Student Volunteer Mission Association. The Student Volunteer Society began to raise up the cause of missions. And it began to grow and mushroom. It was incredible. It began with just a small group of students that was influenced by D.L. Moody. It began to blossom and grow. They chose a man named Mott to be their president. And in 1920, in 1920 they met they started a four-year conference. Every four years or so, they would meet and they would have a big missions conference. And in 1920, they had over 6,700 students that came. And during that time, they would challenge the students with the cause of world missions. They would have people present from the Word of God why the Great Commission is so important to the Church of Jesus Christ and how we need to love the world. And God worked in a powerful way in 1920 to touch people's lives. In fact, there were over 700, over 600 missionaries, I mean students, that signed in a card, we, if God enables us, we are willing to go to the foreign field. They signed on this little card, if God leads us, and if he's willing, then our heart is ready, we're going to go. Over 600 kids. In fact, the next year, within two years after, in 1621, over 600 kids went to the foreign field out of that one university college group but you know what something else happened in 1920 it was right after the first world war 1914 and 1918 the first world war 1920 just two years later there was a great disillusionment in the west because millions of men a million englishmen and a million germans had died just sitting in trenches not any farther apart than that wall to where i'm standing and their, and their authors would just send them and they'd be mauled. And it was a great disillusionment among the young. So at the 1920 convention, a group of students decided the gospel's not important. We don't believe in the cause of Christ. We don't believe that that's the answer. We believe we need to bring economic justice. We need to bring social justice. And they divorced the social mandate of Christianity from the gospel of Christ. They also turned away from this book. It was connected with a movement at, at Princeton Seminary. And they turned away from the authority of this book. 
And so they went from, in 1920, they changed the whole thrust of the Student Volunteer Association. And they changed it instead of the thrust to proclaim the gospel, instead of the thrust to take the gospel to all the world, they began to proclaim what we call the social gospel. And that is that Jesus is not the unique answer. What we need to do is to share just wealth and material things and not bring Christ into it. Now, I want you to know something. The true message of Christ will always unite the gospel with physical things. It always goes hand in hand. But the spiritual is always preeminent. Because Jesus taught us that it's our spiritual being that lasts forever, not the physical being. And so when you really love Christ, you will meet people's physical needs, but you'll do far more than that. You'll also make them disciples, and you'll bring the gospel of Christ, which alone can bring them forgiveness. Those two things should never be divorced. But they were divorced in 1920 at that Student Volunteer Association meeting. And you know what happened? Within two years, they went from a conference that had 6,000 to a conference that just had a few hundred. The next conference had even less than a few hundred. And about a year before I was born, the Student Volunteer Association, that in its history, now get this, from about 1888 or 1889, somewhere in there, till about 1938, that organization sent over 20,000 men and women to the foreign field. But in the 1940s, that organization joined with another organization. They totally lost the gospel, totally lost the message of the word of God, and they became defunct. The organization was ended. You say, well, Dave, you know, that's a terrible story. Remember the mustard seeds? When the Student Volunteer Association went in the tank and turned away from the gospel, the Lord began to shake some other students. And at Ben Lippin, they called a conference. You see, students started reacting to the way that this former organization was so committed to the gospel. These students said, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one that we need to go and proclaim into all the world. They met at Ben Lippin, and they founded what was called the Foreign Missions Association for university students. And they started going all over the country to different universities and different colleges, and they founded what's called the Foreign Missions Association. When I went to Houghton College in the 1960s and 70s, we had a foreign missions association and we would meet maybe two or three hundred strong on that campus to pray for the cause of world missions. And many of my friends, one of my roommates went to Japan because of the influence of the foreign missionaries association. Many of my friends went out into different parts of the world as missionaries. So what did God do? The mustard seed again. In fact, you know, I told you about the glory days in 1920 where 6,000 students gathered. How many of you have ever heard of a place called Urbana? Urbana is of the University of Illinois at Urbana. There was a unique thing happened. At that Ben Lippin conference, in about 1948 or 49, there was a British group that's called the Inner Varsity Christian Fellowship. Now listen to this. Way back 200 years before that, there was a man named Charles Simeon that was led of the Lord in the early 1800s to teach at Cambridge University. And Charles Simeon was a brilliant scholar but he would invite students into his home and they would come into his home and they would pray for the cause of world missions. It created a very powerful, the, the mission societies in London and, and in England flowed out of Charles Simeon's ministry. The Lord worked in what was famously called the Cambridge Seven, 
When D.L. Moody went in the late 1800s to speak in England, there was a mighty movement of the spirit. When I was a little kid, my dad would tell me the stories of a famous cricket player named C.T. Studd. He was the foremost cricket player in all of England. It would be like, like the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. But while C.T. Studd, the best cricket player in England, was at Cambridge, he heard D.L. Moody speak, he was powerfully born again, and with about six of his friends, they formed this Cambridge Seven. They went all over Cambridge and all over England, challenging students, and then they went as missionaries to China. A lot of you remember the story in the film that was made about the man from Scotland that went out to the mission field in chariots of fire. That's all part of that movement that was started by Charles Simeon and a college professor at Cambridge that got students to pray. You see, Dave, what does that have to do with what happened right in the 20th century in our own land? Well, you see, the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship was a missions thrust in England that flowed out of Charles Simeon's ministry and D.L. Moody's revival there and the Cambridge Seven and all that was involved in that. And that organization came to the United States. They joined with a foreign mission society and a friend of mine, a personal friend named Dave Howard, was made the coordinator of a conference that's called Urbana. And every four years, college students gather from all over the United States, literally all over the world. You know what they gather for? The same reasons the Student Volunteer Association gathered 100 years before this. They gather to challenge young people with the cause of world missions. They challenge young people to make a commitment. If the Lord is willing, will you be willing to go? And they've galvanized. You know what? There were 6,000 in 1920. At Urbana, they will have 30 and 40,000. And David has told me that in the late 60s during the Vietnam War, there was hardly any interest. A lot of interest in missions died. But in the early 70s, something powerful began to happen. And suddenly, as they began to challenge audiences, these several thousand strong of university students, will you be willing, over 50% in 1971 and 72 said, yes, we will consider that. And that figure has remained consistent all the way up into the last Urbana conference. And some of our own young people from right here in the church have gone to Urbana. And that brings us right up to today. And the cause of mission is part of our church family. You say, Dave, what are you telling all this about? I want you to realize that the Lord wants you to be part of the order of the mustard seed. You see, way back in the 1700s, a man was born in 1700. He lived only from 1700 to 1760. He was a brilliant young man. He was a powerful young man. He was a noble. In fact, he had the title of a count. But when he was just a young boy, he came under the teaching of a man named Franke and Spainer. They were two Germans that taught young people and taught people you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And this count began to realize that's the pearl of great price. To know Jesus is my Savior, to believe in the holy gospel of Jesus Christ, and to be able to tell others about it, that's what's going to be the mission of my life. This young man went to the coronation of Christian II of Denmark. And when he went to the coronation, he met an African that was challenged with his people, that had come to know Christ, but wanted the gospel to be brought to his land. And Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf, can you imagine a name like that? Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf got burdened for the cause of missions. He took his whole estate, he took his whole estate and he committed it to a society called the Moravian Society. And from that Moravian society, it was a group of just artisans. Some of you say, well, I'm just a business person. The Moravians would meet just as tradesmen, as business people. You know what they did? They believed in their congregations, brothers and sisters, that everyone was expected to go. 
In fact, they wouldn't do what we did in having prayer and making a big deal about it. The Moravians, with their leadership, would say, we won't make a big deal about going out as a missionary. Everyone should go. It's just a normally expected thing. Especially young missionaries just need to be prayed for, they need to be encouraged, and then they need to be given time. And we don't want them to be proud because the normal thing is for all of us to go. Did they go? Remember, 1700 to 1760. Dave Lowry is from Pennsylvania, right in the Lancaster area. In that area, there's towns. Anybody ever hear of Bethlehem Steel? You ever stop and think about Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? You know how Bethlehem was founded? Moravians from Count Zinzendorf came and founded. They came as a group of artisans, a group of families, and they built Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And as they were building their town and as people joined them in their new colony, their new city, their new area, they would gossip the gospel. You have Ephrata, Pennsylvania. You've heard of Ephrata, which is where Rachel is. another name for Bethlehem. So you have Ephrata, Pennsylvania. In fact, if you look at the map around where Dave Lowry is from, it looks like the Holy Land. You know why that is? Moravians that came in the early days of the founding of Pennsylvania. And they were just artisans like you. They were just normal business people, but they believed that the gospel needed to put a go on their feet, and they got involved. You say, Dave, what does it have to do with us? I want us as a church family to realize that if we have the heart of God, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, I want you to realize that when you have the heart of God, that the heart of God begins to beat in you. And what's going to happen as you grow older, rather than your life proving to be untrustworthy and never accomplishing anything, your life's going to be full of a message that brings truth all the way up until the Lord takes you home to be with himself. And that's what I covet for every single one of you. You see, I don't want you to grow old and just put videos in your machine and sit there in your nice lazy boy and have your physical strength end and we have about 20 people come to your funeral because that's what happens to people. They just grow old and they shrivel and they die. You know why? Because they don't have a mission. They don't have a passion for people's lives anymore. They don't have a passion to be involved in taking this gospel into all the world. And what I've tried to do for the last couple times together is to give you an idea of the glory, gospel glory, Instead of gridiron glory, I've tried to give you gospel glory. And I want you as older people to, to encourage the young. I want the young to encourage the old. I want us to get behind it. That's what you're doing. You're already doing a whole bunch of that. And that gives a sacred calling to your secular vocations. And they're not secular anymore. They become the holy place where I have an outreach into the marketplace, but I also have the ability to make it possible for young people to be able to go. As some of you look forward to retirement, as some of you look forward to retirement, don't look forward to retirement to sit around. That can become a golden opportunity for you to be able to go out on missions trip. For example, when I go to Czechoslovakia, the Republic of Czech, on August 2nd through the 12th, I'm going to meet with a group of students. They started out just as young high school students, some of them. They were raised as atheists, totally involved in the communist culture. And somebody shared with them the message of this book. Somebody share with them, Christ died for our sins. Christ rose again. In an incredible way, these Czech students, just a few of them, about 15 or so, believed. They started telling their friends about it, just gossiping, because they weren't allowed during the communist regime to have big meetings or anything. They just gossiped the gospel. They grew to 50. They grew to 100. And that's when the walls came down. They had their freedom. And this summer when I go, I'll meet with about 300 Czech students and career-age young people. You know what they're doing now? They're starting churches all over Czechoslovakia. You know what's so neat about that? 
You know where I'm going to be in the Czech Republic? Right in the heart of Moravia. You say, what does that have to do with our own church? Remember Ed and Corky Murray that were the founding missionaries in our church? You know what Ed did his dissertation on? He did his dissertation on the Moravians and their influence coming to Pennsylvania and how the Lord used their mission desire to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what was started way back there when a count said, I'm not going to live for my titles, I'm not going to live for the glories of Versailles and all the palaces of Europe. I'm going to live for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his story goes on and on and on. You know why? It's the mustard seed. Because Count von Zinzendorf, when he was just a young man studying at Halle, Germany, with two German pietists, he founded the order of the mustard seed. That's where we got that idea. In his little high school group, just like our high school student, Zinzendorf, founded the order of the mustard seed. And the whole Moravian movement, which was one of the very first movements of missions among Europeans, was founded by that little kid that was made a commitment to Christ, believed that God could cause the little seed of the gospel to grow to be a great tree. And now you know the rest of the story of how it comes right up into the modern church and all that God's doing through our work as we continue to believe that the gospel is still the power of God and the salvation. Now next time we get together, I want to talk to you about what in the world can one church do? What can one church do? And I want to challenge every one of you to start to think about it. I want to be a world Christian. I want to be a world Christian. I want to be part of the body of Christ around the world and part of what it means to take that gospel out because that's when you're going to have the heart of God and that's when we as a church family are going to be part of this incredible mustard seed conspiracy that's going to eventually bring the love of Christ into all